Hi, this is Steve. Welcome to part two of Faith, Love, and Courage, our discussions with Christine Robinson, co-author of Our Life, Our Way. In the first episode, we learned about Bill Rush's early life, the encouragement he received from a truly remarkable family, and his faith journey. We also heard from Mike Schaefer and Marlene Brondell, friends of Bill who worked alongside him in his advocacy work for expanding inclusion and self-determination for all who live with disability. Today, Chris and I will discuss what she calls the survival years between 1983 and 1988. We will also hear some stories about Bill from three individuals who were very close to him. Hazel Keeley, the widow of Pastor Howard Keeley from First Baptist Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Loretta Fairchild, a fellow parishioner from First Baptist who learned much about effective communication, faith, and Christian leadership from Bill. And Janet Reif, a friend of Bill's, also from First Baptist Church, who will share her recollections of Bill, his perseverance, wisdom, and compassion. Now let's reconnect with Chris Robinson for part two of Faith, Love, and Courage. Welcome to Navigating Life as We Know It. I'm your host, Steve Johnson. Today we have our second episode on the book, Our Life, Our Way, by Christine Robinson and her late husband, Bill Rush. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again, Steve. Last time we talked about Bill's earlier years, some of his background, and this episode is about the what you call the survival years from 1983 to 1988. And specifically, we're starting off with a discussion about interdependent living versus independent living. Could you clarify the meaning of those, please? Sure. Yes, independent living, that is a term came into being in the 70s, is my understanding, as individuals with disabilities were moving outside of nursing homes. So, in essence, people with disabilities were independent of nursing home care. But that being said, when when people move into the larger community, like the rest of us, individuals with disabilities are not living totally independently. And Bill wrote and spoke about this several different places. And he talked about how in his early years and sort of living independently, as we would call it, when he, when he had his own apartment and was organizing his own attendant care, he talked about how he bought into this notion of independent living sort of hook, line, and sinker, but that he eventually learned that we all kind of deceive ourselves in that we think that we all live totally independently. And he always talked about, you know, the saying about the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, that all of us need assistance from people, whether it is the auto mechanic, the store clerk, the mail carrier, postal worker, uh, depending on where you live, what you would call the person, the doctor, uh, the police, plumber, all, all kinds of things every day. We need people to help us in order to be what we proudly call ourselves in the able-bodied world, self-sufficient. And so Bill had real problems with this term and of calling individuals such as him who lived outside of nursing homes as, as living in independently because ultimately he was not living independently. He needed attendant care that he had to initially coordinate himself, which was horrendous. And then later, 
when he used an agency, he was still getting support from other people in order to help him to live in the community. So he needed to live interdependently. As we all do, you can drive to work in a car that you didn't make on a road that you didn't help build. <laughs> you know, in, in the end of the day, we're all interdependent uh, in a society. Uh, there is a one section in his uh, in the book on page 75, and Bill wrote this, and when I read it, it really says something about Bill's skill as a writer also and his sense of humor and his way to convey frustration all in the same the same uh, writing. But it says, It's hard to paint a picture of my first couple of months of independent living without discouraging people who want to try it. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, If a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. I wouldn't die, but institutional living was a fate worse than death to me. So a commitment to living on my own became my something to die for as well as my something to live for. Often I would get up in the morning, hear that my bedtime assistant couldn't come that night, and spend the day searching for someone to put me to bed. Or an assistant would just not show up or give me two weeks' notice. Emerson once said, Life was a series of surprises and would not be worth taking or keeping if it were not. I thought, I have to be on the right track because my life is one surprise after another. <laughs> and <laughs> I can't imagine what it must be like to wake up and then try to find a good part of the day just finding someone to put you to bed. That has got to be very frustrating. Uh -huh. But it shows that there was an interdependence there. Would you please tell us about his trip to the National Conference of Self-Determination and the work that he did there to further the cause of self-determination? Sure, yes. I actually found this, stuff that Bill had in a file when I was doing research to write the book. All I knew from Bill was that he was asked to join uh, this conference in January of 1989, and I'd met him in October of 1988. So I was living in Canada at the time and that he was going to Washington. And when I asked him what it was for, he said to me, you don't know who I am. I said, well, obviously I don't because I don't know why you're being called to go to Washington and what you're doing there. Reflecting on that, as we'll talk a little bit later, is that, you know, these were pre-social media times. So I lived in a different country. I didn't, I was not a part of the disability rights movement at that point in time. I didn't know who Bill was. If you, if I'd lived in the United States and was a part of the disability rights movement, I might have known of his name. But people didn't have Instagram. People didn't have social media feeds. So I had, I couldn't look him up. I didn't know what he was doing. And then when I asked him when he returned uh, back to Nebraska after being in Washington, what the conference was like. He said it was a lot of work, and he said, sadly, I was in a hotel the whole time, and I didn't get to go to the Lincoln Memorial, which is where he always wanted to go because he was quite a, an a Lincoln fan. And, and that's all he told me. So it wasn't until I was writing the book and I had all of those files, a lot of files, because he kept absolutely every scrap of paper. And I found a little flyer book thing. Uh, from from the work uh, that he had done with this conference in Washington. And I found out that it was put together by the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services, that they had invited 60 people with, as, they, as it says in this book, unusual viewpoints to meet and recommend directions the agency should take. 
And so Bill was one of the 60 people that were invited to go. Over half of the planners had disabilities of one kind or another. And when you look down, the list includes the very cross-disability list, it, which is fascinating and, you know, much more informative than just one particular disability group. So individuals who had autism, deafness, blindness, epilepsy, paralysis, speechlessness is how they describe Bill's life, lack of natural speech, limited speech, cerebral palsy, learning disabilities, mental retardation, spinal cord injuries, and persons who claimed that their biggest disability came from stigmas caused by psychiatric diagnostic labels. So there were also individuals there with mental mental health issues. And so it was, and it said in this published pamphlet of which Bill's name is part of the participant list, that it usually is the professional groups, the parent organizations and government agency officials who plan for people with disabilities. It's high time you yourself tell us what you need. And when I look through what, what had happened, the group of people, there were some academics as well as grassroots individuals and the disability rights movement like Bill, there were presentations, there were keynotes, and then there were pullout sections where individuals worked together. So this was the work that Bill talked about where they created recommendations for uh, to increase self-determination at the individual level, at the community level, and at the policy level for this part of the federal government. So they're in this booklet that I have. There are 20, 29, 26, 29 recommendations that this group came together to, to, to pull together and to present to this federal office. And it's quite fascinating. And as I look through the second page, on page two of this pamphlet, summary of this, this conference and the work that they did, I, I can see Bill's presence right in the description of what had happened because I see there's like six, seven points, slight descriptions of what had happened in the various groups. And the second point says, in one of the five planning groups, so Bill was assigned to one of the five planning groups, a freelance journalist, slash, using a stick strapped to a welder's headband, slowly punched the keys to a computer attached to his wheelchair while his completed sentences were, in quotes, voice synthesized through a loudspeaker. That couldn't be anybody but Bill, the way they described it. Correct, right? Right? So I read that, that's Bill. Yeah. And and what I what I particularly liked about it is it described him as a freelance journalist, which is what he was doing at the time. His, his professional work as well his as well as his lobbying and advocacy work, right? So he was a freelance journalist, very trained journalist from University of Nebraska Journalism School. And so they they described him in that way, right? Instead of deficit centered, <laughs> it's strength centered, yes. right? In the description of the of the event. I'm going to read another quote from this booklet. It says, though there were differences, they were together when they spoke about being pressured towards the margins of society, having folks label us and treat us as if we weren't whole people, and having to go to programs where everyone else makes choices we should be making. As planners shared these experiences, the clearer it became that they had the making of a powerful coalition from this coalescing spirit came the 29 recommendations that follow. And these are very person-centered recommendations. All of them are, including things such as non-disabled persons be helped with perceived inner terror they experience in the presence of those with disabilities. And I wondered if Bill had something to do with that wording. 
help reinforce friendships between students with and without disabilities. So through across the, the you know the age span, uh, persons with disabilities be helped to compile their own oral history, as history is so important to inform how we see ourselves now. Work for universal design and technology. Bookstores set up regular sections on disability. That was one of Bill's beats is was that why why is all the disability stuff, you know, really in the hands of the people of power over my life rather than it be available to me at the regular bookstore? And on and on it goes in terms of financial things. And then there's a description of each of these recommendations that they made. So that's what Bill did in July of uh, July, January of 1989 in Washington. I was going to ask you what date that was. That you know, that is a lifetime ago when it comes to communications and technology. Like you said, we didn't have Twitter and we didn't have we didn't even have an internet. Uh, no. Now the battle cry is nothing about me without me. Definitely, mm-hmm. people should be advocating right. for themselves. And Bill was quite a pioneer on that. But I think what's also interesting here is that people that were taking leadership positions were not doing it to become a, a center of focus themselves. One of the quotes here from the book that I wanted to read, leadership was expected but not glorified. Everyone in the disability rights movement was required to do what they could on behalf of all persons with disabilities without drawing attention to themselves. The movement, although, with definite leaders such as Bill, focused its energy on defining a common future rather than promoting its leaders. That says a whole lot about what the mission was and the dedication of the people leading the mission. It wasn't about them. It was about everybody behind them. Because there's a lot of people who were born since 1989 with disabilities that are able to enjoy some benefits that were hard fought 31 years ago. Right. Almost 33 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to hear about this and put ourselves back in that world. Bill did a lot of other work, too. He worked towards self-determination for people with disabilities in, in a lot of different ways and with different organizations. Would you tell us a little bit about Bill's work as a grassroots activist and the roles he played with disability rights organizations? Sure. Again, I was such a newbie, right, to the, to the disability rights, and because I had a day job and Bill would, you know, take off and do his things. Sure. And very similar to the National Conference on Self-Determination, Bill didn't talk about it. So I just had, again, related to what you said, it was expected, the quote from the book. Yeah. Um, it was just expected that you do what you do. And so Bill didn't blabber about what he was doing. Like, I didn't know most days what he was doing when I was off at work, unless it was something that he was doing, you know, to help me, or he was writing a story and he wanted me to read it or whatever, you know, something like that. But I did know the things that I did pick up were that, and one thing that isn't on the list is for the non-American listeners in, um, I'm assuming each state has a developmental disability council yes. um, that, that gives recommendations to the governor and build it serve with that group. So, you know, in similar ways, right, where, wherever he could plug in, either offer himself or people would ask him because in a small state like Nebraska, you get known really quickly if you're someone with expertise in any area. And so people would ask Bill, to, to sit on governing councils on boards. I knew that he was involved in the Disability Rights Center, one of their boards. I do remember a couple of conferences. He was a peer mentor for the League of Human Dignity, and I believe he was on their board. 
at some point during the time that I was there. And he just, you know, because because he had a developmental disability and was felt really aligned with people at the ARC and People First, which tends for the non-American audience to support individuals with intellectual disabilities. Bill really aligned with those those leaders and the individuals involved with that kind of work. So he, you know, he had relationships there and he was more than willing to step up in any way that he could support. And I, I think his work, as far as I know, there could be other things. Again, he didn't talk about it, but I do know that he, I do have material from when he and I helped him to get to uh, conferences that he did keynote presentations for the ARC and for People First. You know, he had allies in each of these groups. A very well-known American advocate, Nancy Ward, from Nebraska, an individual who uh, got herself out of an institution, has some mild intellectual disabilities, more minimally minimally impairment. She, um, she was a friend of Bill's. And so he aligned with her with this group. And in fact, Nancy Ward was one of the keynote speakers at the self-determination conference. I found that when I went through and I saw her, uh, her keynote is in there. So, you know, Bill just aligned with people wherever he could possibly align with them around disability rights issues and really encouraging people to, to find their place, right, in the, in, in the larger movement and very, very cross-disability in orientation. You know, wherever he could, he could connect with people um, with disabilities and, you know, support each other and support their collective work, he would just step in and do it. And I can see he would be sure. someone that would be sought out to be on a committee or be a contributor because he had a lot to share. And that probably became very, very mm-hmm. evident with the other people in the disability community. So you start networking quite well. And, and the same thing for people today listening to this, if they think that, well, I'm only one person, I can't get that much accomplished, you're probably right as one person. But if you network with other people, and, and believe me, they're looking for people, everybody wants someone to join in, that's one way you can make a difference. You make a difference with and through other people. Bill, like any young man growing up, had all the same feelings and the same emotions and the same interests that anybody else does, and that includes also in sexuality. And you had put in the book that he had written a number of articles for local papers and national magazines about sexuality for persons with disability. In Journey Out of Silence, Bill writes that the choice between one-nighters and sisterly squeezes on the shoulders is like choosing between gluttony or starvation. I'm still waiting for a woman who was willing to share the hearty meal of marriage with me. And obviously he found you. So that wish of a lifetime came true. But it it has to be very difficult to have the same desire for a relationship, a close relationship, a a sharing relationship. It's it's really hard when people see you as being on the fringe. Mm Yeah, so, you know, he, he also talks a lot about the fullness of one's sexuality. You know, he had a lot of upset with with a popular media, probably popular culture, sort of obsession with with sexual intercourse as the primary means of communicating. And he did write about that. I don't think I'm I'm stepping out of line here by saying something that he didn't write because he was, you know, he was very aware of his own, you know, physical body. And so he was looking for something much broader and really very uh, very encompassing of not only physicality but also emotionality in the re- in the relationship, and was very 
very, very concerned. And I think it comes out in our life, our way of, of reciprocity. But because, because of his disability and because of the history of people with disabilities being seen as so dependent and needing and asexual, um, he was very concerned about that kind of reciprocity and the sharing word that you had said, Steve. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was writing, you know, there were just a lot of adjectives that came to mind. So for Bill, transparency and honesty, honesty was top of the, top of the list. Loyalty was top of the list transparency, uh, depth of sharing, openness, fully engaged. Like Bill was all about uh, maximizing every single minute in terms of engagement. You know, there was just never, never just a dull time with Bill. Like Bill just didn't settle into mediocrity of any sort of life because that wasn't who Bill was, right? So there was always more to do, more to experience, more to learn, more to be with around, you know, intimacy. He wrote about into intimacy, looking for emotional and physical intimacy, and that that being so important to him as he tried to explore his own the you know, the fullness of his own sexuality. And I just have uh, the last thing I had on my list here is really just highly, highly committed. That was Bill. That sure comes across in his writings and everything you've said about him. In, in a that hearty marriage, I could see where you could really open your heart, and that's what he was looking for. Yeah. A man of integrity, by yeah, all means. absolutely. Bill also talked about restoring his ruptured relationship with God. What did he mean by that? I think, kind of like the rest of us, in, you know, our relationship with God is like, you know, one thing leads to another, things pile up, or a relationship with, with another person in a similar sort of way, that the grudges build. And I think for Bill, it was the accumulation of Christians behaving badly, right? And we talked about that relative to Journey on a Silence, right? What he witnessed at his church when he was growing up, the, you know, the limited tolerance of him as a part of the group, uh, just literally just inside the door. And, you know, I'm assuming I'm talking to people who fully understand what I mean by tolerated versus included. And Bill was all about full inclusion and fully embraced and interacting with people. And he was so minimally tolerated uh, as a child in the church. So that kind of, that was, that was a blow in terms of, you know, Christians behaving badly, but they really didn't know better. And we talked about that last time, you know, because Bill was born in 55. So we're talking early 60s. The majority of individuals like Bill would still be living at the state institution you know, people were unfamiliar with him and uncomfortable with him. But you know, he had to—he—he he, he was only a child, so he no no frame in which to process what his experience was like. People were awkward around him, I believe, based on what he how he explained things. But people did their best with what they what they had, right? As we as we sort of go back in time, and I think um, the moving back to the as I described, as Bill talked about the earlier years as the survival years. When he was moving out on his own, it was so difficult, as you described, reading what he sort of tongue-in-cheek wrote for for that conference when he was here in Canada, but and other places where he wrote about it. It was so incredibly difficult that at one point, uh, when Bill was living on his own, and he saw his mom, and his mom said, you know, this is just killing you. You know, you're eating poorly, you're not, you know, you're totally stressed out. 
And, you know, Bill really believed that, really in his heart of hearts, he believed that God had given him the gift to accept his disability and that God had put him in the place and time where he was born, which is very scripturally based, to do what he what he needed to do at that time to support other people with disabilities. He really felt that that was his call and that he was supposed to go out and live in the community and open up doors for people. But man, it was terrible on him. It was just awful. And so there was another, you know, grudge against God, right? Why is this so difficult? Even though he he was from the land literally of the pioneers, you know, and his mother used to say that Bill had to live like a pioneer. You know, he lived pretty primitive kind of experience when he first moved out on his own, hiring and firing his 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 own uh, attendants and trying to deal with a world that did not. You know, people would call the police and report him as being, you know, escaped from the state institutions and crazy things like that um, because the world was not ready for him uh, yet to live outside of an institution. And he had to push that door open. And he was just worn down. And, right, we all get to that place where if we really feel like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and we feel like there's so many, uh, you know, roadblocks and barriers and difficulties, that can really rupture our relationship with God. And that's where Bill was at the time when Our Life, Our Way, the book starts, when Bill shows up, you know, and even saying to God, you know, if you would just give me a front door accessible church, I'm not willing to go in a back door because you called me to be someone who goes in the front door and pushes for front doors to be open as welcoming and fully accessible, if you would give me a front door accessible church, then I will come back, we'll work on renewing my relationship with you. And he did. At First Baptist. And he did. And he really, and he really felt like God checkmated him. <laughs> Since you like to play chess, that's a good term. <laughs> right, right? Because he's like, okay, I'll make this move if you make that move. Yeah. And, you know, and he, and little did he know, because he, he assumed as most of us of a certain generation looking around at churches of made in certain decades, not more recently, but older churches of which Lincoln had a lot at that point in the downtown core where Bill lived, that they all had at most some kind of elevator out the back door. And, and Bill kept complaining and saying, but you called me, you know, his lament to God was you called me to push doors open. And so why would I go in the back door of the church? And then he shows up at the state Capitol and lo and behold, sort of Teddy corner across the street um, is, are these bright red doors of first Baptist. And he looks over there and goes, and he, and he's saying, he's saying to God, uncle, uncle. Okay, fine. You know, check me. You've got me. I will go. I will go. That is a fascinating story. And I, I, from, the book talks about how Pastor Howard felt that he was mm-hmm. learning a lot from Bill. Although Bill was being nourished spiritually in that relationship, Pastor Howard was learning a lot about disability, which he could use with the rest of the church and in his ministry to uh, make sure that they were a front door church. A very, very mutually beneficial mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And Pastor Howard, Pastor Howard had the gift of joy. One of those people that you just want to be around, he had the most uproarious laugh as a pastor I've ever heard. And it was just contagious and delightful. He had the biggest smiling face ever. But he he had his own path, right? It came out of it came out of his childhood. And he knew, I'm not sure how much I'm free to say here, but he knew what it was like to be an outsider and he knew what it was like to be an othered, right? As Bill was. 
he and he relished relationships so much, and he relished welcoming welcoming people into the church community, and really just kind of nourishing people along on their relationship uh, with God, leading into you know further deepening commitment to God and uh, and really learning to embrace Jesus. And he did that so well with Bill because of all of those factors that really you know you can imagine. Uh, Pastor Howard with his absolutely booming, beautiful laugh and Bill's sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I know, well, that's like, right? Right? Yeah. They just love, love, love to laugh together. And he could just see, he could see Bill's heart. He, he had said to me at one point, I think Bill is one of God's choices creatures. Choices. Huh? I loved it. Choices creatures, right? And he was looking at the totality of how amazing Bill was as an individual and all of the aspects of Bill as, as a choicest kind of a thing that, that God would make because, because Bill was just so unique and interesting and vibrant and, you know, determined and angry at times and, you know, just all of it and so engaging and so open and, you know, so humorous and all kinds of delightful things that we talked about. And, and Pastor Howard could see all of that. But he also saw the wounding that had happened to Bill because of his hard work of trying to push doors open and, and find ways to live in the community. And he, you know, he took a spiritual fatherly kind of relationship on with Bill and committed time to him. And it was gold for Bill. It really was. He grew in leaps and bounds by Pastor Howard's um, investment into his life, his his spiritual being, his, you know, his emotional life and his just support of Bill, especially around exploring his relationship with me, that Bill really needed somebody who could see Bill's ability uh, to step into this and measured but supportive. Well, definitely a pivotal time in his life when he encountered First Baptist Church in the whole idea about creating that braid of uh, active faith and profound love and courageous disability rights, a great deal, I think, of his motivation to be a, a, a disability rights advocate came from his belief in, in God and, and the, the worthiness of human life and, and dignity of the individual. Yeah, it was huge, you know, and because he grew up, you know, he was, what was he, seven, eight, you know, watching Martin Luther King. Right. You know, lying on his belly, watching him on the TV, right? He he grew up in an era where he saw, you know, a pastor slash civil rights leader. Like, he just inhaled it all and integrated the, the promised land that Martin Luther King quoted, right? Bill even, even rewrote what Martin Luther King said in some of his presentations for people with disabilities. I mean, that's how much he inhaled it all, right? Because... Because, uh, yeah, because his belief of dignity of life and for all individuals, not just people who live in able bodies. If Bill hadn't been living with disability at that very young age, he might not be there listening to Martin Luther King on the TV. True. So not to say that God plans a disability, but he certainly puts uh, other resources in front of you when you have a disability or, or something that's different in your life that you could pick up those tools that God's giving you and use them to make the world a better place. And he certainly did. There probably weren't a lot of young people that age uh, listening to Martin Luther King, but what a, what a treasure that he did. What a treasure that he did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, really good point. Yeah. Really good point, Steve. He probably would have been out with his brothers, you know, playing ball. Right. Right. Exactly. So that helped make him the person that he was. Boy. 
you know, he bloomed where he was planted, okay. right? Hazel Keeley now shares with us some of her memories of Bill Rush. The first story was how Bill persuaded First Baptist Church in Lincoln and Pastor Howard Keeley to take a step toward full inclusion for everyone by installing an elevator to the lower level of the church, where the Bible studies and other community activities occurred. Next, she shares with us the story of Bill's baptism. Bill, who used a motorized wheelchair for mobility, opted for a full immersion baptism, a sign of his determination to witness to his faith in the same manner of all his fellow parishioners. Finally, Hazel Keeley speaks about Bill and Chris's marriage, the challenges they faced in a society that wasn't exactly ready for them, the perseverance of their love, and the conviction of their faith. I remember Howard coming home and telling me he had met Bill Rush, a paraplegic, at the back door of the church building. Theirs were preventing Bill from entering. Bill told Howard for most churches, the back door was his only entrance. He mentioned that he had come to meet the new pastor and to see if he could enter the church building. Howard told him the front door was accessible and also the sanctuary. And Howard said he would look forward to seeing him on Sunday morning. Bill began attending. As he met often with Howard, he expressed his desire to grow spiritually by also attending the Wednesday night Bible study held in the fellowship hall on the lower level. But no way could Bill get there. It wasn't until Bill talked to Howard and they went back and forth that Howard, you could see, we just really needed that elevator for Bill, but not for Bill only, but for other people that were beginning to come. We had other people in a wheelchair and elderly people that needed to use the elevator. But it really was Bill's persistence with Howard and the courage that Bill took to, to stand up get an elevator. <laughs> it was because of Bill's persistence and courage that First Baptist has an elevator. I have a great memory of Bill's baptism. He came to Howard asking to be baptized by immersion to give his witness for Christ. Howard asked if it would be more comfortable with sprinkling. No, Bill insisted on immersion in the church's baptismal. Howard was pleased to do so. He got the deacons together, and after telling of Bill's request, they agreed to carry Bill into the baptismal water where Howard was waiting for him. He spoke of Bill's faith in Jesus Christ, his courage, and what he meant to the church. And then he was immersed like he had requested. After, he was brought back into the front of the sanctuary and remained until the service was over so people could greet him. After speaking for a few minutes to him, my last words were, Bill, you are such a handsome man. The biggest smile came across his face. I believe God brought Chris and Bill together. God was with them through their courtship and marriage. They had obstacles that no ordinary courtship or marriage would have, but they walked through the hard times and the good times with love, faith, and courage. Loretta Fairchild now shares with us some of her memories of Bill, how he helped her become a more patient person, about his determination and his spiritual wisdom. 
I am one of the older, currently able-bodied women in the congregation at First Baptist, where I think God sent Bill to wake us up. It took a long time, and it didn't end with Bill's death. It's embarrassing to have to say this in public, but I was totally oblivious to how much harm I was doing to Bill after church most Sundays. Our sanctuary is an oval, and the outer wide hallway, I guess people call it the foyer, is where many people chat on the way out. I would often stop and ask Bill a question, but then most of the time I would flit off to do something else on my chore list saying, I'll be right back. I was much too busy, busy to wait for what felt like to me forever for Bill to input his answer into the voice box with his head stick, let alone wait to hear his thoughts come out at eight words per minute. Yeah. And lots of times, I never came back. The worst part of it is that it wasn't until years later that it even crossed my mind that each week his answer to me was clogging up Bill's voice box and that he couldn't talk to anyone else while he waited for me to come back. That feels dreadfully rude to me now, but I was oblivious then. And yet, Bill never once called me out for wasting his time. He had a tremendous empathy and level of understanding. And I don't think he would imagine that you would intentionally do that. Well, but and, it just went on and on. I mean, yeah. you know how many weeks there are in a year? A 52. <laughs> <laughs> Years went by during which I felt very impatient around communicating with Bill. But then, with no marker that I can see, the Holy Spirit somehow melted my impatience from deep within me, and I shifted into a fairly calm comfort zone with him, something else that I only came to realize years after his passing. At the time, it was just a normal part of my life. It did make a change in your life, and sometimes those changes don't happen right away. They happen over time. Mm Mm-hmm. Not in my life. (laughs) All my changes seem... I'm what's known as a late bloomer, and all of my changes have come at a snail's pace. What would you say about his determination? I guess that just feels like a regular part of his life, but I'm not sure that I noticed that much at the time because, because I wasn't very thoughtful. But Bill surprised me with his extra maturity of his spiritual wisdom likely because I was just looking at his calendar age. One example occurred when a much older white woman, part of a couple who had been considered spiritual leaders for decades, was diagnosed with breast cancer that didn't respond to prayer or chemo. She and Bill entered into a discussion around what it means for a believer in Jesus to be healed. Bill surprised us all as he re-explained his wisdom from God that he didn't need prayers for healing from his CP because he was just fine as he was. Why? Because God had put him into that body for God's reasons and that he, Bill, was just fine living within it until he would receive his new body in heaven. 
That stuns me to this day. Again, he was teaching all of us older people. So I'm not sure if you count, is, is that determination or wisdom, but maybe they're related? I don't think you can separate them. I think that the mm-hmm. wisdom comes along with the mm-hmm. faith. But yeah. obviously, for him to be able to say that I don't need prayers for healing, and he had to say yeah. it to us more than once, but this is the example that sticks in my head. But he obviously had, well, I'm assuming he had wrestled with God around that whole question of healing, although he was very young, obviously, and so I have no idea how he got there, but yeah, he was sure way ahead. So maybe that shows determination in his faith? Oh, I think so. he kept on through the obstacles? I've heard that from some other people in my life that have lived with disabilities, and they say, I'm perfect the way I am. I'm, I've been made this way for a purpose. Interesting. And you know, well, you don't hear it a lot. Sometimes you hear a lot of complaining, mm-hmm. but, but there are those who realize that if the world is going to change, it's going to be changed by those people that are motivated to not just make it better for themselves, but for everybody else behind them. And mm-hmm. it seems like that was one mm-hmm. of Bill's major points that he wanted to make the world a better place for those that follow behind. And he did. Mm-hmm. And he did. He's accomplished yes. much more than many people ever will in their life, even though he couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. Oh, vastly. Vastly. Yeah. Yes, he was very focused on doing this for everyone who was confronting barriers into the world. I read Journey Out of Silence, his autobiography, and then now Mm -hmm. uh, Our Life, Our Way. And it does show his frustrations. Uh, He was willing to show his warts and show where he thought Mm -hmm. wrong and and how he grew from it. There was no pretense or hypocrisy in him. Because that honesty is what helps other people grow in their faith also. I always received way more blessings from being with Bill than I was giving to him in any given situation. For example, when the movie The Passion came to our local theater, I went along to read the words of the English language captions running at the bottom of the screen because he didn't want to miss out on any part of it. I would not have taken the time to go see the movie on my own. I was always too focused, only on work. But the images of suffering in that movie are valuable memories for me. And the whole shared experience with Bill allowed me to recognize the still small voice within my life. So here's my last one. I was very busy in those years, working full-time as a college prof and raising two small kids with my husband. And yet each phone call from Chris about a current need always came when there was an opening in my schedule where the errand fit in easily without disrupting any other promises in my life. I did feel a small sense of wonder around that, but mostly it just felt peaceful, normal. Looking back, I can see that our friendship with Bill and Chris was bringing much-needed balance into my life and drawing me closer into relationship with Jesus. Janet Reif shares with us some stories about Bill's determination and the depth of his faith. 
speaking about Bill's faith, one of the things I remember the most was his coming to the Wednesday night Bible studies, interacting with the rest of us as we asked questions and made comments about a Bible passage or pastor would lead the discussion, but then, you know, invite comments. And Bill would take his time and we'd wait for him and he'd type things into his machine and then speak them. And he was very discerning and thoughtful. And, you know, what he said always made a big impact on people. And then a couple of other things that were important about his experience in the church were that he was asked to be a deacon at one point because of his Christian character and his uh, obvious commitment to Christ. And so one of the duties of the deacons, of course, was to pass the trays for communion once a month when we had communion, but he couldn't pass the trays. So the pastor would frequently ask him to pray the prayer right before we took the elements. And so he would type it into his his machine and then push the button and, and have the prayer. And then the other thing, which I know Chris wrote about in the book, but that was a big memory of mine, was when he was involved in that uh, reenactment of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, uh, on Monday, Thursday. Thirteen men representing the twelve disciples and Jesus were dressed up in kind of authentic costumes, and then the uh, director of the play, who who was an actor and artist himself, wrote scripts for them to say. And I don't know if he volunteered or if he was asked, but Bill was Judas that year. So he had kind of a hard part to play, but he did it well. And uh, in order for him to get up on the stage, the men of the church built a ramp so that he could wheel himself up. And and he was very much a part of that celebration and reenactment. One of the things that was a unique anecdote to me, I guess, was that my dad had passed away after a long illness. And, you know, it had been a rough illness. And Bill composed his own personalized sympathy card, which, of course, is painstaking for him to use his uh, head stick, and and it took him a lot more time than some of other people who would just type it up on a computer. And then he mailed it to me. And the next Sunday, before I could even get to him, he rolled over to me and said, did you get my sympathy card? I said, yes, I did. And I really appreciated it. And then we had a conversation about, you know, how I was dealing with my dad's loss. And his voice in the liberator, but his face and his eyes always were such communicative. You know, he really showed great expression in his face. You know, I just knew he was deeply concerned about me. He was that way to everyone. He especially liked kids and, and teenagers in the in the church. They would often crowd around him because he was just an interesting person to talk to, and he had jokes ready to tell them. So he was just a, a people person, and that card was one example. And we were close enough friends that, well, first of all, let me tell you about something before his death. Even before Chris and Bill were married, you know, they were part of the church, and uh, we saw them interact a lot. One year, Chris went to the Philippines with our pastor and a group of people from our church for a mission trip. I think it was about a week to 10 days or so. Of course, Bill was lonely without her there, though she wasn't his personal assistant. You know, she still provided a lot of emotional support for sure. him, and yet he was very supportive of her going, didn't, you know, didn't resent it at all. He was very excited that she could go and be part of that mission. But that was in the wintertime. He was very adamant that he was still going to come to all the activities in the church. So he was at the Wednesday night Bible study during that time, and we had bad, it wasn't a snowstorm, but we had a big snow during the evening while we were indoors. And he went out and started rolling home, which is about a mile or so from the church. (laughs) My husband noticed that he was doing that, and he went out, stopped him, said, you can't do this by yourself. Yeah, I can. I don't need any help. (laughs) (laughs) I, I can manage. And the snow was kind of getting deep, and I think it was still snowing. But my husband insisted that he was going to go with him, and so he, he walked the mile 
behind him to make sure he didn't have any tip overs or something on the way. And sure. uh, just his determination that he was he was going to do things without help because he was able to. <laughs> Chris, we spoke in the last episode about the development of technology that that, uh, enabled Bill to communicate as effectively as he did. The goal wasn't just to satisfy his own needs, but to promote the development of advanced technology to advocate it for all people with communication disabilities like his. Tell us, please, about the work with uh, he did with the late Bruce Baker of Semantic Compactions Mm -hmm. to develop hieroglyphics. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. symbols that are used that would go in uh, on the touch talker. Yeah. So Bill described the hieroglyphics as Bill's description of what the what the MinSpeak system is. For people who are interested, MinSpeak.com, you can look up the language symbol system that has been used as a part of the Pranky-Romic technology product. And it was developed initially by uh, Bruce Baker, who unfortunately passed in the last 18 months. When Bruce was developing using symbol combinations to create language to increase the speed. So the point of it is that you have, for example, you have an apple. And an apple can mean red, can mean eating, can mean food, can mean fruit, can mean so many different things. And if you put it in combination with another symbol, like the sunshine can be yellow, can mean light. So you could use the sunshine plus the apple. You learn, I think at the time when Bill first got his touch talker, I think there were about 4,000 combinations of pictures that when put together would help him to increase his speed of communicating rather than having to type out every single letter of every single word. Uh, which, by the way, Bill learned all the 4,000 uh, and how he learned it. <laughs> Why does that uh, not surprise me? <laughs> he did. Anyway, uh, he, had, he had my mother-in-law, so his mother recorded all of them. <laughs> Bless her heart, right? The wow. heart of a mother. So sat and read things out, and, and, and these, this is the land of tape recorders, right? Way back in the ancient 1980s. She recorded them, and he would just sit there and listen and and form his own connections around all these things. But anyway, I, and again, I had to research this stuff because Bill didn't talk about it. You know, I'm sure part of it was, you know, he was just so, he was so caught up in what do I need to do today? What's next? You know, that he didn't spend time going back unless it was something of incredible emotional significance. If it was just part of the work you do as a part of the display rights movement, he didn't talk about it. So when I was writing the book, I I knew it was a speech-language pathologist whose name is Kathy Bodine. And Kathy Bodine is now head of uh, assistive technology at Colorado University. She is a published author in terms of assistive technology. She's highly regarded in this field at this point in time, right? Because in 1980, she was working for Pranky Romic, and she was the one that worked with Bill around him trying out, testing out the touch talker with the MinSpeak system that would lead him to go to California. But I am so grateful to Kathy Bodine, who allowed me to call her and interview her in 2011 to get a bit of the story of what had happened in terms of Bill field testing the touch talker uh, to, to go to Isaac in, in 1988, that she had been a part of that journey with him. And she was the one who told me that prior to him field testing it, that Bill had had gone to some place in New England 
with Bruce Baker and two other, uh, my understanding is two other male adults who would also wanted something that would increase their speed of output in terms of communication devices. And he had put forward some of his symbol ideas and he picked the brains of these three guys about what made the most sense to them. So partly why Bill was able to memorize the 4,000, because part of it was his thinking. (laughs) So, you know, to be fair, right, part of it was his thinking and part of it was how, you know, these other two thought and then Bruce Baker had pulled this whole thing together to create the symbol system. That bill called hieroglyphics because he was thinking in terms of, you know, ancient writing with pictures that meant stuff for people. So that that was Bill's description to the lay person, assuming that everybody knew what hieroglyphics were, which probably a lot of people don't know. But that would be Bill. He would use that term. (laughs) You know, how exciting it must have been for Bill to be involved in a way to create more rapid communication. When he communicated at, 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 what was it, eight words per minute, that had to be... Mm-hmm. Boy, if you don't have patience, that's either going to develop it or make you go crazy because it's really hard to communicate <laughs> at eight words per minute. Most of us, eight words per second practically sometimes. But to be part of creating this this technology, I bet that was a thrill for him. I bet that was just great. And it brought him to, you said Isaac, that's the International Society for Augmentative and Alternative Communications, ISAAC. It brought him to California, and, mm-hmm. and what what uh, what happened in California at that conference? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, the California was the um, you know that was the big change for for both of us, right? You know, it was the chance meeting. Bill was there as as we talked about to uh, to kind of sh- as he described it, he was there to show off the the touch talker. He was there to show people that you could use it as a communication device on behalf of the Frankie Romick company and Bruce Baker and semantic compactions, right. That, that they paid his way to come and, and, um, you know, chat with people and, and, and show them kind of where things were at at that point in time. So that's why, that's why he was there. And, you know, and I was there as a part of my work. So if, if I'd not been there as a part of my work, obviously I, you know, lived in Canada at the time and Bill was living in Nebraska and meeting in uh, Disneyland in California, right. There's, we both ended up there, and so that was our chance meeting. You were both there because you were supposed to meet. That's why. <laughs> that was yeah, part of a plan think- that you were not privy to. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so, too. Chris, you're not a native Nebraskan, correct? Correct. <laughs> you are from up north. But now, but now fully embraced, I think. I think I'm fully embraced as one now. Uh, so you were born where? I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. That's where you're living now, isn't it? That's correct. And you pursued a career as an OT, an occupational therapist. What what brought you into that field? Well, you know, I, I was trying to think about how to respond to this. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm old, right? So my generation of girls growing up, we, you know, we were still fair. We were just, just emerging from, you know, women being teachers or nurses. To a bit more, right? Like the women, the girls weren't really going into STEM at that point. It seemed like we were still quite destined towards the helping professions. And so I'm sure that's one of the reasons. Then there were some just practical things like, you know, influences. As we talked about influences in Bill's life. So influence in my life, I happened to babysit for a woman in my small community, a part of Greater Hamilton. I babysat for a woman who was an OT herself. 
And she worked in mental health and she had the most amazing weaving loom in her sort of front room. And I love that. She let me, she let me play on it, right? When, when the kids were in bed or whatever. But it got me curious because I like doing things with my hands. I like doing stuff with kids, you know, and it was like, well, you know, maybe helping people doing things sort of fits me. And so I looked into it and lo and behold, you know, it was, it was, active but not too active it was more activity based than than sort of the sister profession physical therapies we call it in the u.s and we call it physiotherapy in canada but uh, they're closely related but it seemed the ot stuff around activity seemed to sort of fit me more so that's kind of where i ventured towards and somehow managed to get myself in the program at university of toronto where i lived for quite some time to get that done and you know so that's how i got there you had some experience with disability before you met Bill. Is that primarily with the folks that you worked with as an OT? Uh, yeah, so I did, um, as a part of my education, there were the clinical practice kind of things, which were more hospital-based when I was at OT school. But in the summertime, I worked one summer at a camp for individuals with um, intellectual disabilities, and I worked another summer doing canoe trips with um, 10, 11-year-old boys in Northern Ontario through the Easter Seals program here. And then as a part of that summer, I was also, I think that was my beginning sort of introduction to individuals with significant disabilities because part of that summer I spent with supporting a, a, a cabin of, of some young adults who were there out of uh, Northern Ontario Institution for individuals with more significant disabilities. But, you know, at camp, right, it's a more fun-free kind of environment. And so, yeah, so I think that's where I first got my introduction to individuals with, with significant disabilities. So it was, it was very comfortable for me. It, was, um, it didn't feel, you know, uh, difficult in any, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then I gradually moved into, after I got done with OT school, um, I lived in the, uh, the eastern Canada province of Newfoundland. Uh, which is for Americans that's north of Maine and then go out in the ocean, a big, okay. big, big island out in the ocean where you're closer to Ireland than you are to, you know, to anything really North America's way out there. But when I got my first job, I worked at a major institution for individuals with intellectual disabilities. And I think I just mentioned this experience because I think it was critical for me to experience individuals in a very large institution um, you know, experiencing a lot of the horrific stuff that happens in big institutions. I lasted six months and then I had to leave. It was pretty horrific for me. I really didn't know what I was getting into, but it was a good precursor for me to understand, you know, sort of the, you know, the precursor to the, to the disability rights movement, right? And the deinstitutionalization movement and why, why individuals would want to, uh, to get more, um, uh, community-based supports for individuals because uh, even as some of the staff were caring towards the individuals that we work with, the situation kind of felt like the tail wagging the dog, right? It was like the institution made the place run and it was not, I mean, I would never want to live in a place like that. So why would anybody else want to live there? That, that mm -hmm. really helped you understand Sorry. Bill's fear, his yep. uh, anti-institutional, because you had experience, uh, a brief experience working in one. Yep. And it, it struck you the same way, too. Good, good God, I don't want to live here. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's what we used to think was a good thing, you know? Um, yeah. but, but hopefully we've moved way beyond that now. Um, 
and it was just, it was, it, it was painful for me in a lot of levels. You know, I didn't really understand it. It wasn't, it wasn't until my life with Bill that I could kind of put it all together. But all I knew was I wasn't a part of that system and I couldn't work in that system. And I could not, yeah, could not imagine what it was like for the people who sadly had to live there. Wow. Quite, quite an education. Yeah. Important. Uh, important and I think, in terms of my life with Bill. Agree. Very, 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 very important. Six months. It sounds like you were able to see these individuals as people, human beings with wants and needs and and emotions. Uh, long before you met Bill, you were able to see past the disability, see past the chair, and see inside the person. Uh, and yeah. that's a that's a great yeah, vision to have. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think I, I think that's fair. When when it's kind of what you do and who you are, you don't really know anything else. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but, but it was there. It was there as a part of that experience. And then I moved over to work with kids with disabilities, kids in, and so children and adolescents. And I started, so, so really totally changing, um, you know, to, to, to highlight how they were supporting individuals to live in the community who were young at that time in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. I worked out of the Children's Treatment Center there, and uh, we flew into smaller communities in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to support the families of kids with disabilities so that they could stay in their communities. So just to show you the difference in attitudes. Yeah. from, you know, one place to another. And I'm sure there's a lot of places all over the world that have those two things kind of going on. We got sort of the old traditional way we've always done it this way. And then we have the new, let's keep people a part of their communities and bring the support in so that people can continue uh, a very traditional way of life as integrated as possible um, into local schools, into local, you know, fishing communities and that kind of thing, which was a totally different really positive experience for me to be able to get to do that. Getting back to you and Bill, you guys met in California. Did you actually meet at Disneyland or was it at the conference? At the conference. And and what first attracted you to Bill? How did how did you actually at the moment that you actually met or were introduced to each other? How did that happen? So sort of fast forwarding from my Newfoundland experience, I was back working where I you know grew up and where I live now in Hamilton, Ontario in the local hospital system in the Children's Treatment Center, and I was working with young people who needed augmentative and alternative communication. I was a part of a part of the assistive technology team, and I was also working with uh, teenagers through school-based services. Um, and so I knew that knew these young people from a variety of, of different settings. We went to California because we had started a, uh, a group. It was a social worker that I worked with. Um, who, who thought that it would be good if we could help the teens to talk to each other. What a concept, right? Yeah. Um, that in the 1980s was it's really progressive to help young people to communicate with each other who were nonverbal. And so I was at the conference presenting with one of my colleagues on our work with the teenagers who used augmentative alternative communication to have a teen group. And as part of that teen group, the young people, they were looking for role models of adults who were like them. One of my colleagues had met Bill when he had come to Toronto after Journey of Silence was written, and she had, she had some notes from what he had presented then, um, and so that would have been in 86, I think a couple of years before that. And so we, we had read some of the stuff that Bill had, had spoken of. 
to the teenagers. And so I kind of had an introduction to Bill um, through his through what he had written that my colleague Shelley had read to the teenagers before I went to Disneyland. So they're, you know, kind of a pre-introduction, which is always helpful when somebody is nonverbal to yeah. get a sense of who they are before you really meet them in person. And so what was your first impressions when you met Bill? Um, so I saw Bill before I met him. I saw him uh, driving himself in his motorized wheelchair around Disneyland. And so my initial impressions of him by himself around Disneyland uh, were that he was incredibly independent, uh, something very different from the teenagers that I worked with who always had someone around them all the time. Uh, but my other, uh, my, uh, there were a couple of other impressions. One was that um, he obviously his, his disabilities were significant because of the size of his power wheelchair. I was struck by how tall he was in his power wheelchair. And I was also struck by how good looking he was. And I could see his head stick was on. He was driving in this power wheelchair to which he had attached a frame with some uh, small speakers. And, and I thought to myself, wow, this guy uh, really, really sets up things the way that he wants them. Like I could see that right away. And that obviously he's not pleased with the with how loud his communication device can speak. So he has added these speakers so he can shout, as it were, using a communication device. And I thought that was kind of cool, right? Yeah. Like I guess he set his up for himself. No learned helplessness. Could you explain what a learned helplessness is? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's been a long standing sort of history of encouraging people, maybe not not consciously, but unconsciously encouraging people with disabilities to be helpless in order to get their needs met. Because Bill was very assertive. He was not helpless. And I think people learn to be that way because we we find it easier to maybe help people who are not assertive, but are more come across as helpless in needing our help, in essence, right? Versus Bill was very assertive about his needs. And, you know, some people saw Bill as very demanding. And he used to say, yeah, people call me stubborn and demanding. And, you know, that stuck with him, right? As, uh, well, this is what people think of me. But he knew that the opposite was, was never going to be good for him. And so he had ways to deal with that, right? He would kind of joke about himself as being kind of the stubborn, loudmouth American. He would, you know, he would say, here comes the, you know, here comes the demanding guy. Like, he would just, he would make jokes of it as a way of dealing with it. But unfortunately, you know, even just advocating for basic needs, you can get yourself a name, quote unquote, you know, reputation uh, with people who are providing your care because you just speak what it is assertively, what it is that you need. And really the struggle is to try to, and Bill talked a lot about the passive aggressive paradigm and to try to find that assertive place without becoming passive, which is learned helplessness. Right. And aggressive, and aggressive, where you really take over other people, right? You're you're obnoxious. Is to try to find that place in the middle, so you still build relationship with people, but people are in essence typically paid to be there to meet your needs, and you have needs, and you need to articulate them uh, clearly, but with uh, respect of the individual that you're dealing with. There's no way he could have become the effective advocate that he was 
without being able to strike that balance of not being too assertive, but definitely being more persistent. And I think that mm-hmm. I, I don't want, I don't mean to demean his efforts in using a sales approach to it, but he certainly could sell an idea. And the idea, of course, was rights and dignity, mm-hmm. but he knew how to frame that and present it. That is a skill. <laughs> that is, you can go to get a, a master's degree in advocacy, I think, and there should be one, that to know how to navigate people that are in positions of, of setting laws or creating policy, to let them know why this is a righteous move, why this is something which supports dignity, and, and not do it in an overbearing way, but do it in a consistent and a persistent way. Yes. I think, I think journalism school helped him. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, to, right? Because he asked a lot of questions is how he dealt with people who were, you know, suspect, especially when presenting, you know, ideas to people. Again, I think because he played chess and he liked strategy stuff, kind of turned things around, right? Yeah. To help people to think for themselves rather than him telling them how to think. Nobody takes it more. Having somebody tell you you need to think in a certain way, he would just ask people questions until all of a sudden they looked at him and went, oh, yeah, you know. So they can discover it as if it was their own idea, but he'd convince them by asking questions. (laughs) That's that's very, very, that's an art. It really is. And apparently he was quite, quite good at it. Mm -hmm. I would agree. And I understand Bill gave you a copy of Journey Out of Silence uh, early on in the relationship so you could get a little background as to who he was and where he was coming from and where he was journeying to. That was that had to be a good way to help the relationship grow. Yeah. So when I, you know, then the stories chronicled in our life are way, but before I left um, Disneyland, you know, Bill always had a sense of humor, right? Sort of he. He said that he gave me a book and he also gave me a rose. And so that's why there's a rose on the cover. He had said, this is instead of the boring in-flight magazine for your long trip back to Canada. So I had read, I read most of the book um, uh, coming back uh, to, to Toronto from Los Angeles. And when I read it at that point in time, I, I just cried. I was weeping all the way back because it was such an affirmation that the character of Bill that I thought that I had met was in the book. And that's incredibly helpful in a situation where you, where you meet somebody for the first time and you don't have anybody to validate who they are, you know? And, and he gives me a book about his life story and it, and it all makes sense with what I have seen. And, you know, and especially because of the, the communication disability and the distance and, you know, the, the cultural and country differences. And there were so many things that I needed to learn about that it really helped me to begin to understand, you know, who he was. Yeah. And then and then he would continue to write me a lot of letters. And for those people or the younger you know generation listening to this, right, we didn't have social media. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, we didn't have, we didn't we didn't have quick communication. We had what's called you know the post office, and you actually <laughs> sit down and you write a letter and by hand in those days because we didn't have all this fancy technology. And you know, Bill used a typewriter, and he would print it off, or he had he was one of the first to get you know, one of those big massive IBM computers, and then he would send it to his dot matrix printer, print it off, somebody would have to rip the side pieces off, fold it up for him, put it in an envelope, and he would have to take it to the post office and mail it to me. So there was time 
the upside of this experience was there was time to process what I was, you know, the letters I was getting from Bill and the letters he was getting from me, which I would suggest that in a, you know, instantaneous social media relationship world, we're missing that time to really chew on what somebody has sent to you, what you have learned from a book that they have written about their, their life experience to just give you some time to sit with it rather than, you know, jumping right into a relationship that's so instantaneous, so quick without a lot of processing time. You had a chance to grow some deep roots. Yeah. And you had phone too, but then there was long distance charges <laughs> because you're way up north there in Canada. Yeah. And we didn't, and we didn't have all those cheap plans like you have now, right? Like I have yeah. the whole U.S. on my Canadian phone for 10 bucks a month and I get like a bazillion minutes, right? Right. But then it was literally by the minute. And so, you know, so between, between the airline, between the postal systems and two telephone companies and basically United Airlines. We racked up some, you know, some charges between the three things. And, you know, my, my mother-in-law would joke with Bill that his, you know, his, the cost of his relationship was equal to the U.S. national debt, you know, <laughs> because it was just, it was just costly, right? It was sort of the family joke. Like, Bill's got this friend in Canada. Look how much he's, you know, he's, he's, he's racking up all these charges, right? But, but you, you use what you have. You right. Use what you have. I guess right. it's the bottom line as you're trying to sort out any any kind of relationship and, and he saved all the money yeah, all, think, you know if he didn't spend a lot of money on dates right i mean it was basically the phone or it was uh <laughs> saying, <laughs> you could put it True. that way <laughs> how did disability rights organizations like the league of human dignity and i love that title actually human dignity and pastor mm-hmm. howard for uh, first baptist uh how did that assure you of bill's ability to maintain and grow your relationship yeah, they were assurance. The two of them were, again, as I talked about when I read the book and it kind of wind up what I read with who Bill was and, and his character that was just so critical for, for this relationship to go forward. When I met um, Marlene and from the League of Human Dignity and Pastor Howard, their reassurance, their evidence that Bill was who I thought he was you know, I think this notion that we, we get ourselves into relationships and it's all very emotionally charged, right? Sure. And we're really not able to use the thinking parts of our brain very well. Yeah, objectivity times, flies right? out the and window so, when, when the heart opens up. Right, right. I think that's just human. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that's just me. I think that's no. human. That we really need people to validate who this person is. You know, and it would be my number one concern about, you know, online dating is that, you know, I, for me personally, I need somebody to validate who this person is and not some profile that they're putting out there that I don't know if that's who they are. And I didn't know anything about Nebraska. I didn't know anything about disability rights. I did not know anything about Bill's church, his faith, his, his relationship with people there. And so to have them you know, bear witness. And for me to see their relationship with Bill was just everything to me. They were confident that that if anybody could pull this thing off, it would be Bill. <laughs> they were totally confident. And so they built my confidence. Without it, I dare to say the relationship just would have, you know, it just would have gone by the wayside because we had so many societal and systemic barriers that we had to work through. We desperately needed both of both communities to rally around us. And, you know, we needed our own, our personal faith for both of us. 
we needed to grow and grow and grow and grow and deepen our own uh, personal faith. And and you you need a community to do that. You can't. I don't care what anybody says. You can't do that on your own, right? It, you right. need people to rub shoulders with you and to do the daily stuff with you that builds your relationship um, with God deep and strong and foundational. And so they were so critical to us for that. So yeah, they were just everything to me. Profound love, courageous disability rights, and active faith. They really are wound together. Your experience at First Baptist Church and in, in validating who, who Bill really was and, and the authenticity of the man, plus the combined faith that you both have, it really helped build your relationship, helped fuel uh, Bill's commitment to disability rights, mm-hmm. foundation for your growing love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Absolutely, all of it. You know, they were there for advice. They were there for prayer. They were there for you know, for really, really important fellowship. And I talk about the church as being kind of a, it was a sanctuary for us. Like people didn't realize at the time what we were dealing with, right? Because the church, you're, you know, you're dealing with with church life. But they were sanctuary for us because you know we could go to Wednesday night suppers and somebody was there. You know, uh, Bill's attendant would come by the time I would get there from work. He'd typically be done with supper. But, you know, one of the older people who was making or the people who were making the dinner, right, they would make a dinner that that they knew that Bill could eat safely and well, right? And so he was just so welcome and so included, and the attendant was welcome there with him. And, you know, they would just kind of, you know, love on Bill in very practical ways that, that people don't realize how much we needed at the time because it's just what they do, <laughs> That's what they do. Yes, they're making the meal for that Bill would have no trouble eating. They're making these accommodations because they were getting so much from Bill, too, and it was reciprocal. Oh, totally. People that I've talked okay. to from First Baptist, they loved Bill for what he brought to the relationships, mm-hmm. not just because they could serve his needs. So very much mutually beneficial, yeah. very much what you would consider a Christian community to be built upon. Mm-hmm. Beautiful relationship. Because because of what he did for them, I would agree, Steve. Yeah. It's, it, was, it was so reciprocal. So you ended up moving to Nebraska. In addition to Bill's courageous pursuit of disability rights, uh, he also developed other skills as needed. Uh, he was an effective lobbyist and even one might say a lawyer in your case, because <laughs> I, I think it was going to cost you more than you could afford to uh, to hire a lawyer to help get you to be able to stay in the United States under the free trade agreement. What did Bill do to adapt uh, or help adapt the Canadian-U.S. Uh, free trade agreement to secure your employment in Nebraska? What was his role? Yeah, so, you know, talk about, you know, my faith perspective. I talk about the God sightings all over the story, right? And one of them is that the month that I said, okay, all right, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to move, which was a huge move for me to leave my first nation and for me to go down there and, you know, get my own place and, and, and explore this relationship with Bill. As soon as I said, okay, I'm ready to go, Bill was at the, with, with one of the local federal, so the federal government senators, for people not, not American, and he was checking into the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Act to see if my profession of occupational therapy was on that list, which meant that you could get a free trade permit so you could work for a year. Americans coming to Canada, Canadians going to the U.S., you could work for a year if you got this free trade permit if you had secured yourself employment with someone on the other side of the border. As soon as I said, okay, okay, I'm ready to, to move, Bill went and checked this out with a local senator, and occupational therapy was not on the list. And I thought, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll just go and we'll 
sort this out some other way. We'll figure this thing out. So as soon as I arrived, literally I arrived in Nebraska, the first thing that Bill brings to me on his wheelchair tray is he has a package from Senator Exxon's office. And in the package is uh, like literally spit out the day before a list of the most current occupations that were included on the Free Trade Act and highlighted on this piece of paper was occupational therapy. So it literally landed like the week that I arrived in Nebraska, the federal government in the United States added occupational therapy to the Free Trade Act, which was just so stunning. And in fact, it was so new that when we, I found, secured myself a job with a friend, we go back to Canada and, and re-enter the country, re-enter the United States with my information from my employer to get myself the free trade permit. So we drove to the Manitoba-Canada border, North Dakota, Manitoba. We drove, literally drove across, did a U-turn, came back <laughs> to the border office on the U.S. side, literally went, hello, Canada, goodbye, Canada, whipped around. And when we got in, got ourselves into that, I went into the office with my paperwork and I had this paper that Bill had secured from Senator Exxon's office. When I went in to visit with the border officer, he didn't have the updated list. <laughs> we had it because of Bill's research. So uh-huh. the guy looks at me and he says, he says, you're an OT. He says, it's not on the list. So I pull up my paper the bill and I said, well, apparently this is the list of the week. And the guy looks at it and he says, oh, there it is. Okay. So he fills up the form. <laughs> and, you know, within like 10 minutes, I was out the door. Um, you know, nobody there, right? This is this is March. This is March of, of whatever, 1991. Um, by the time we got all this stuff said and done, uh, maybe it's February. Anyway, we so we just get this thing done, and, and in we are. We just get it done because because of Bill's research. You certainly <laughs> made sure that you were well prepared, <laughs> having the updated <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah, and it's so odd that, yeah. of course, the occupational therapist appeared on that list at the time that you needed it. Makes you think about some divine uh-huh. intervention there, doesn't it? <laughs> right, doesn't it? Like, there's just God sightings all it's, over. It's kind of like, uh, wow, another affirmation you're heading down the right because path. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt, it felt affirming, right? I, I had it in the same category as as um, Marlene and Pastor Howard's sort of affirmation and, you know, testimony who Bill, to whom Bill was and that we could really get this thing done. And then I get a job and I'm allowed to do this. I'm like, okay, here we go, right? We're going to we're going to actually get this thing done and move forward in our relationship and figure this thing out. We have one more thing for this episode and uh, it's disability rights in your relationship. The Americans with disability act was signed just six months before you moved to the USA. And you soon started to see buildings become accessible that previously had not been. What was that like for you? Were, Were you aware of how much was changing? Oh no, I was, I was aware because Bill was just, so excited you know he would go around and check all the places that he could get to in his power wheelchair right and come back and these he did report to me you know this place is getting around that place is getting around they're fixing to put an elevator over here right he would just tell me everything that was going on in the community that was in compliance with ada right and and he was so excited because it was so welcoming to him and vicariously i was excited too because 
before I moved there, I was living in Southern Ontario with a lot of places, with a lot of steps. And I remember looking around here thinking, how do, how do I have a relationship with somebody who uses a wheelchair in, you know, public places? Like, what do you do? You can't go to restaurants, you can't go to movies, you can't, like, how do you enjoy your relationship, right? Other than being in the place where you live, we all want to be out in the community, and engaging in things that we enjoy. And so for me to go there and see the transformation, again, it's like, it's like the welcoming, you know, the, the, the free trade stuff. It's like the affirmation from Pastor Howard and Marlene. It was like the welcome mat was literally, uh, you know, unrolling for Bill and I and for our relationship. So we could go to the coffee shop down the street and hang out on the porch. We could, you know, we could go to the ice cream place around the corner. Bill could run around the corner and get ice cream for both of us. And so he would call over and, you know, they would learn to recognize his voice and he would pre-program it and they'd say, okay, Bill, you know, we'll have it ready for you. And then he'd zip around and he'd put it in his backpack and, you know, he, in, in those days, we didn't have all the credit cards. So he'd just go with cash and stick it in his tray and they put the ice cream in and, you know, run back around with ice cream for us because it does get very hot in Nebraska in the summer. Yep. So, you know, just, such a welcome is what I felt like. It's like, wow, Bill is welcome into this society. And, you know, so there, it was hopeful. It was a season of real hope for us. You could experience this more than most because you were with Bill and witnessing this, but most of us take it for granted uh, to be able to go to different venues and different stores. Uh, but for all this to be opening up to be Bill, this is like it must have been a yeah. renaissance for him to be able to experience that uh, all happening with the ADA. And I'd like to read something that you had written on uh, Chapter 28, Ramps to Relationship, because I think it's extremely well written. And it creates a picture in my mind and hopefully will with for listeners. During the summer of 1991, I watched as one of as one by one the buildings in my neighborhood in downtown Lincoln became accessible to people with physical disabilities. Even if the ramp was a metal plate to allow Bill to roll over one small step, it was a symbol of the success of the disability rights movement to push for rights of integration that would hopefully lead to attitudes of inclusion. The fun local coffee shop built a concrete ramp to the patio and side entrance. Bill could now enjoy hanging out on the patio with me while I drank cold tea and chatted with him. Simple pleasures, like chatting at the coffee shop, taken for granted by the able-bodied world, became new routines that we enjoyed together. These might seem like small victories for able-bodied people who frequent public places all the time with ease. But for those with, of us with significant people in our lives who had been until recently physically excluded from many community buildings, every ramp represented a new welcome mat, welcoming us together into the mainstream of American life. I celebrated the construction of each and every ramp that we could see in the 20, blocks, 20 square blocks where we lived with Bill. It is so easy to take things for granted. Yeah, and to be able to just go out for ice cream, to be able to go to a coffee shop, uh, this had to be great for both of you, but I think even more so for Bill, since you'd been able to go to coffee shops all of your life, but he had not been because they just weren't accessible. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Anything else you want to talk about? We're going to come back on episode three and talk about uh, developing and deepening of faith in the Christian community. Also, some of the uh, disability roles that, that uh, Bill continued to play and a number of other topics in the book. Anything else you want to say at this point? No, okay. I think I think we're I'm good for now. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for going all these places. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us for Episode 2 of Faith, Love, and Courage. Today we spoke about love and the audacity of change. Next week will be the conclusion of our three-part special on Bill Rush, focusing on his life and how his determination to change things fundamentally altered the status quo in Episode 3, Life Together and the Courage to Change the World. Steve and Carrie have been your hosts. My name is Alex, and I'm the producer of Inlocky. Daniela handles all of our social media and general communications, and Holly is our website guru and mistress of the blog. Thanks for tuning into our podcast, and please like, follow, subscribe, and share our podcast to help us grow. You're the best. This has been a production of Envision Media Group, LLC.